Welcome to The Missing Link, a podcast where crypto and insurance come together. I'm Dan Roberts, and my co-host is Danielle Wall-Elliott. Whether you're in crypto, traditional finance, or in need of a new podcast, The Missing Link will help you explore the vital role that insurance plays in crypto and how blockchain will disrupt insurance. Join us on our journey to find The Missing Link. Okay, today we have Stephen Becker uh, on our episode one of the Missing Link podcast. Uh, Stephen is the CEO at uh, crypto firm UDHC. Uh, Previously, he was COO and president of the Maker Foundation, uh, of which many of you will have heard of. Uh, He speaks about the origins of MakerDAO and his involvement there. Uh, He has an interesting ocean metaphor, uh, including sinking ships, sharks, and changing sands. Um, He talks about the compliance arc of decentralization, and he has his views on uh, the potential for clear regulation, um, risk mitigation and management being uh, part of that missing link. Uh, Stay tuned. It was a great discussion. We hope you enjoy. Okay, Stephen Becker, thanks so much for being with us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for for having me on. This is is exciting. Guest number one. That's right. It's exciting for us. Um, we're kicking off the Missing Link podcast with uh, with yourself. So thank you so much for your time. Um, I think we can fire straight in with an intro from yourself, um, you know, nice and quick, and uh, and we can go from there. Right, absolutely. So my name is Stephen Becker. I'm the CEO of a company called UDHC. It's a proprietary investment company. Um, but importantly, where this this company came from was the you know, the executives of uh, said company were also executives on the Maker Foundation, which was the, the entity that developed and deployed um, an organization called MakerDAO. Now, just to run through MakerDAO quickly, it is, in a nutshell, um, an on-chain organization that generates and distributes something called DAI, which is a decentralized stablecoin. So my sort of recent uh, past has always been in the crypto space, um, focused on decentralized stablecoins, decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs, and really the concept of what decentralization looks like in the space. Before that, I was my previous lives were in uh, investment banking, um, derivative structuring and trading, um, hedge funds, and a lot of structured products um, as well. So covered a vast array in the sort of traditional finance side. And what I did was try to bring a lot of that sort of traditional tooling um, into Maker and also into the UDHC in trying to you know, discover the new and exciting projects that are going to define the future that, that we see. Absolutely. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, MakerDAO kicked off in 2014. Is that right? Or am I the concept kicked off in 2014. The the okay. first version actually was deployed at the end of 2017. And the the story of getting from 2014 to 2016 is really interesting. And then you've got the, the final version called Multilateral Die that was launched in 2019. And that also has an equally um, uh, sort of interesting story as well. Amazing. Well, um, you know, not 
many projects in the crypto space can uh, you know can boast going back that far so lots of experience uh, i'm sure um what we like to do is ask uh, our guests whether they can rate themselves from one to ten on crypto and on insurance us being a, a crypto and insurance protocol so you've given some indication there but perhaps you can put some numbers to uh, to crypto to begin with yeah that's interesting i mean immediately if you say crypto the first person that comes to mind is vitalik Buterin. And I think, well, if he's a 10, then I'm about a six or a seven. Sure. And then that's, that's the, a yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, that's a massive benchmark. Then on the insurance side, um, if you had a look at a, an actuary with 15 years of experience as, as a 10, then I'm say I'm about a five. Got so you. that's kind of where I, sit, I kind of place myself. I feel like I need to reevaluate myself now that I, I see what a 10 <laughs> is. <laughs> Yeah, we, yeah we, we both might have to do that. Um, okay, great. Well, you know, uh, very strong benchmarks to kick off our first podcast. And yeah, I think, you know, we of course want to get into what you're up to currently, but, you know, myself being a, a bit of a fangirl of Maker and Die, I would love to, you know, chat about that a bit. So, you know, I worked at Shapeshift, um, an exchange for six years before joining Names and, you know, really just had this passion for decentralization. How could we move away from custodians and really, <clears throat> excuse me, get get crypto to its, you know, natural outcome being being more decentralized um so you know my first representation of a decentralized stablecoin was DAI, and my first representation and an understanding of a dow was you know maker um i remember you were saying like you know 20 2018 i think it was either east denver 2018 or 2019 where you know there weren't a ton of DeFi projects there weren't a ton of DAOs, but you guys were there and you know really just just fell in love um, with what you're doing. So, you know, my question is, how do you think that that maker story and the maker mission has drove an understanding globally, you know, for decentralization? Yeah, that's, that's, it's really interesting because right now maker, I can confidently say is the OG of DeFi. Sure is. And it's remarkable how being in you know, the foundation and, and developing this, this protocol, you're so thick in the weeds that when you come out on the other side, you kind of think nobody really knows about it. It was so hard. It was successful, but it was hard. And you think, well, it's working. It's doing its thing. You know, everywhere I go, I need to explain to folks what MakerDAO is. And I find that, you know, I open my mouth and I say MakerDAO and everyone's like, oh, I know exactly what that is. So that was stunning. I mean, that sort of OG effect really only hit me, I would say, during 2022, funny enough, I mean, I knew people understood it, but I always thought I was in a bubble. Right. So now to the story and to, to you know, what Dan was saying earlier, Make It Out as a concept actually starting around about 2014. Uh, the founders, Rune Christensen and Nikolai Michigan, came up with Make It Dial whilst they were contributing towards a blockchain called BitShares. I don't know if anyone remembers that. This was back in the past. And... So what was interesting there is that, you know, whilst contributing to this blockchain, you know, Ethereum launched in around about June, July of 2015. And then Rune had a look at Ethereum and thought, you know what, instead of going with the blockchain or kind of an app chain approach to creating a decentralized stablecoin, why don't we use a DAO structure on top of, of Ethereum? So that's what they did. And looking around around 2015 2016 looking at the, the landscape at the time they also decided that 
they would wanted to go for something called a crypto asset collateralized stablecoin structure as opposed to a fiat backed or a scenery structure and just to elaborate on that a little bit it, even though it's a mouthful the crypto asset collateralized structure is just creating an over collateralized position against which you generate the the stablecoin die as opposed to you know the fiat back which is tether usdc you stick a dollar in the bank and somebody basically mints a token and says that thing represents your dollar in the bank and then you get synergy structures which another word for it is algorithmic and all that means is that you use a whole bunch of algorithms to make sure that the stable coin stays pegged to the us dollar or whatever the target um you know asset is so they came up with the um you know they came up with this concept of saying well let's use this over collateralized uh, structure for a stable coin and then with that decision um they attracted this community of developers and these community of developers really contributed to this first version of make it our called single collateral dai so before dai was called dai it was called sai just as a little bit of historical context and what's interesting about these developers is that they were also contributing towards ethereum at the time and they were incredibly proficient at not only understanding the sort of blockchain space but also the development of the programming language called solidity and the reason i emphasize this is because nikolai was really the pioneer in you know security understanding and auditing of smart contracts he was the guy that actually came out and said not only do you need to create a rigorous approach to programming using solidity you also need to understand formal verification and how to apply it so make it all was the first protocol to apply formal verification um into its sort of security stack so that's really interesting from a developer point of view but at the same time um it was protocol that was steeped in this this heavy ethos of cypherpunk decentralization um decentralization is an incredibly robust uh, uh you know sort of tool but at the same time it's not terribly efficient and what became really clear you know during that first stint from i would say 2015 to when it, when single collateral dai was deployed in 2017 is that the community was let's just call it very amorphous and very fluid in the way that it organized itself and so when you know so leading up to that first deployment of make it out it became really clear that in order to get the final version out multi collateral dai a little bit more organization was actually required so um but just after 2017 it was around about november 2017 where the first version single collateral dai was was deployed um i joined and i created with uh, my team created the maker foundation in 2018 and the, the whole point of that was get multi collateral dai developed and deployed and out the door and that was really interesting an incredibly pivotal moment so you talk about decentralization and folks talk about it from a structural point of view from an application point of view but it actually starts from a cultural point of view you need to have that ethos you need to have that culture you need to have that north star that guides you so this was really difficult because that ethos of that cypherpunk decentralization was still there but we were using this sort of conventional tooling so you can imagine there was a little bit of friction it wasn't easy but the community and the foundation eventually did actually come together and in i think it was december 2019 um uh, multi collateral dai was deployed 
And that was that was crowning achievement. And as far as we're concerned, like a little bit of a miracle. <laughs> but it worked and it came out and was fantastic. So the version that was launched in 2019 is actually the version you see operating today. Uh, nothing really much has been added to it other than new features that you know, effectively you know, the community has, has created for itself. The important step in decentralization, funny enough, was dissolving that foundation. That was kind of like the full stop, the period on the sentence. Like fully decentralization means dissolving this foundation. And we did that in the later part of 2021. So when you ask, you know, what has driven the understanding, the mission for Maker has always been about creating this unbiased global currency. And what I mean by that is really sort of a type of money that just cannot be influenced by anyone. And that was incredibly important. As you can imagine that ethos coming through into, into the, the delivery of the stablecoin. And if you take a step back, you realize what that required was this permissionless protocol that is effectively accessible to really anyone with an internet connection. And that, I think, were the first two, I would say, components or, or the basic premise that drove home the idea of decentralization, being permissionless and being non-jurisdictional. And then what came out of this was also a better clarity of what a DAO is. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say this right now, nobody is going to agree on what a DAO is. Legally speaking, or even just subjectively, they're not going to agree what a DAO is. But the, the aspects of a DAO that became clear because of Maker was that a DAO simply is a combination of a protocol and its community that operates it. If you can accept that, you've got 75% of the notion of what a DAO is you know, well established. And then going a little bit more granular, and just to sort of tie this all off, one of the other aspects of driving decentralization is understanding that the community need to create the sort of emerging functions of uh, there's two emerging functions the one is a decentralized workforce and the other one is decentralized governance and again maker was really a pioneer in that effort granted there's a lot to be improved upon but essentially the concept of how does the community organize itself how does the community operate and look after itself was critical in understanding what a decentralized protocol looked like so I would say in a nutshell, that's the story, and those were effectively the, the drivers that, that um, you know, gave rise to understanding of this concept of a decentralized protocol. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I, it really, you know, gives me like chills and little like butterflies, like thinking about that, you know, process. And and you're so right. I'm I'm so glad you mentioned Rune and Nikolai and, you know, the the people that really have been the pioneers and that have paved the way uh, for the rest of us to do a lot of, you know, what it is that we're doing, you know, and, and even with names, you know, we are a centralized, you know, entity or a centralized company, but we're getting to use these decentralized tools. We're getting to build on top of the Ethereum network. And yeah, it just feels good to to know and, and hear that story of, you know, the, the shoulders that we're standing on. So yeah, thanks for, for sharing that. Yeah. And, and, and use, you know, die within our, our segregated That's accounts. Right. I mean, yeah. one thing I picked up on, as you mentioned, you didn't have to go much further in explaining MakerDAO to the kind of crypto and blockchain, various, various blockchain communities globally. And uh, certainly, um, you know, agree with that. How have you guys found that extending to the more traditional world? 
you know, when these institutional investors are starting to engage with blockchain and crypto, I imagine the explanations have to come back. Is that the case? Well, that's interesting. The one aspect um, that, I, that I haven't ruled out yet is that in 2018, we identified really quickly that the public policy and the regulatory landscape was something we needed to, to really get our heads around, understand what was the initial sort of conditions and figure out what this evolution was going to look like. So in terms of explaining you know, where DeFi fits, it's been a long haul, a very, very long haul. Understanding what a stablecoin is, even still to, till today, the concept of a stablecoin um, is literally just categorized as a feedback stablecoin. Mm. And the concept of DeFi is still, it used to be about two and a half standard deviations out in understanding. It's around about a one standard deviation out right now. So when you have a look at that arc of explanation, it starts with the traditional Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then it starts touching on decentralization, things get a bit hazy. So the concept is there, the understanding is there. A lot of the, the regulators have come out with great documentation and great literature that have actually nailed, I would say, 70% of what DeFi is, but it hasn't answered the, the bigger questions. So when I engage with the the um, the institutions, I have to do so from a regulatory point of view and from a regulatory understanding. And it's coming together nicely, but it's going through a transition period where folks are going from TradFi to what I call kind of like a permission DeFi before they want to look at DeFi. And quite frankly, I think the transition will take a long time. I think the sort of Web 2.5 the centralized operators that use blockchain are going to be the, you know, the thing that brings down the, the wall that actually overcomes the obstacles. The gateway drug. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we've been, you know, pretty positively, um, impressed, uh, with the regulators that we work with the BMA over in Bermuda. Um, but I think a lot of this, is because we look a little more like a traditional business uh, to them in ways that make it the Make Foundation and now a pure DAO uh, did. And so it's this idea of perhaps you can regulate the fringes, um, which was, I think it was Greg DePrisco, uh, who was head of BD for a while at, at Maker, um, you know, was talking about, was, you know, talking to me around those fringe services that are allowing different parties and traditional players to engage with uh, the core technology, but perhaps the core technology isn't the bit that can be regulated or certainly hasn't uh, reached that stage of maturity on the regulatory side and the legal side. Um, another great... There's an analogy I use that because, you know, um, the great points on, you know, regulating the fringes, it came from this notion of, if you think of decentralized, and I like this analogy, so please forgive me, uh, if you think of decentralization as the ocean, right? You can't regulate the ocean, but you can regulate the ships, the ports, the you know the shipping lanes, etc. And the concept of decentralization actually extends to self-sovereignty as well, because if you go to the beach by yourself and you want to go swim in the ocean, by all means, as soon as you perform any operation on the ocean that requires a business or you're looking after anyone else, it effectively needs to be regulated. So it's a great analogy because it allows you to imagine how folks would engage with the fringes, but also have the ability to engage independently by themselves. Right. 
Yeah, right. I, I, I like that analogy. I mean, I'm sure you can take the metaphor uh, all sorts of directions with sinking ships and rising tides and uh, sharks and, and all sorts. And, you know, speaking of um, the various different metaphorical players that are, are playing in the ocean, you, another reason why we're interested in speaking to you today is you obviously play a key role on the investment side uh, of the industry through UDHC. Um, you know, in general, do you want to take us through that UDHC story, what you generally look at, you know, what's currently impressing you at the moment and, uh, you know, perhaps how the investment landscape has, has moved throughout this year. It's certainly not been a, a boring year in that regard. Yeah, it certainly hasn't been at all boring. The, the one thing that we learned from the Maker Foundation became incredibly evident and this is somewhat unique to make it out because it was evolving at the same time Ethereum was also finding its feet. So the concept of building out an ecosystem was incredibly important. So you know, from our point of view, Maker wasn't so much a case of let's build um, a protocol that issues a decentralized stablecoin. It was let's build a protocol that develops an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Because if you, you know, not to go into too much depth here, but um, you know, Maker requires different types of collateral in order to generate DAI. And the concept was, if you look at those types of collateral and how they can be flywheeled into using um, Maker, it also creates a flywheel for themselves. Because essentially, the stablecoin provides the capability of their projects. And so the ecosystem could build all the way through. And that concept we, we, we took with us into the UDHC. We're looking at the ability to build out this ecosystem. Because for us, you know, I would say that the, the sort of future vision is traditional and decentralized finance coming together to create this sort of new definition of finance, where the, the vision, if you sort of break it down a little bit, shows that, you know, Blockchain will basically be the back end of pretty much everything um, from a technological point of view, but specifically, it will definitely be the back end for all financial applications. And the significant difference there, and something I've already touched on, is the extent to which the user wishes to engage with those applications independent, independently. Um, an example I also use, um, I remember talking to, just to sort of name drop a little bit, I went to... I uh, talked to the CFTC, it was a uh, technical advisory committee, was uh, effectively just presenting to them. And I mentioned to them that this, this concept of anybody can engage with a decentralized protocol because it's infrastructure. And when I say anybody, they generally worry about, oh, retail people, we need to look up to them. And I go, well, hang on a second. This also includes Citibank. Citibank could engage and use something as the back end and offer great new products to their users. And it does go all the way down to those that are proficient enough to be able to go into the CLI and, and, and engage with the protocol itself. But in, for all intents and purposes, this new definition of finance is not going to ask everyone in the world to become proficient at blockchain. So 99.9% .9 of people are going to be engaging with front ends that range from Citibank to some sort of... Um, you know, free to use front end that's mm. being outsourced and, and open sourced. So that vision of the future really then sort of tells us what kind of project that we need to look at. 
you know, we need to look at a project, we need to look at projects and support projects that effectively help bridge TradFi and DeFi. That is essential, but at the same time, we also need to look at projects that focus on creating this infrastructure and becoming decentralized. So when you have a look at the, the investment landscape, there's, there's obviously it's kind of like a shotgun approach that's, that's happening right now as far as investors are concerned. But as far as we're concerned, we've sort of narrowed it down and said, well, we're looking for these projects that can bridge. We're looking for these projects that can create the protocols, the infrastructure, the tooling that supports this future, that supports this bridging capability. Um, so the, the sort of thesis from our side and, and the, the way that we, we go about it is, again, just coming from Maker, we, we learned a lot in terms of building that ecosystem out, but we also learned a lot in terms of what this arc looks like. And we call it the, the sort of arc of decentralization. And in a nutshell, what does it mean? It means how do you get from your garage to a DAO or to a decentralized protocol? And we had a lot of insight into that um, and figuring out what that looks like from a structural component, you know, what sort of um, entities do you need to create, but also more importantly from community development uh, point of view. So again, when you have a look at that landscape, you got to constantly ask yourself the question, if the future is going to be this new definition of finance, it's going to be somewhat community driven. So there's going to be a community element to it with respect to the infrastructure that helps these bridging projects achieve what they need to, need to achieve. So foundationally speaking, it's about what are the projects out there that can attract the community, that can galvanize them, that can actually then, you know, um, turn them into decentralized workforce and decentralized governance because so much comes out of that as well and then just to my my previous point about engaging with regulators and public policy you know that was something that was a a very clear and defining moment for us because we realized that with this uh, back then we didn't have this phrase but now looking at it looking at this arc of decentralization we're going through we needed to include this compliant angle how do you go from your garage to a DAO in a compliant manner? So we sort of rebranded this concept for ourselves and said, well, it's no longer just an arc of decentralization. It's about the compliance arc of decentralization. And that now it allows us to, again, narrow our field of, of view and focus on the projects that wish to engage with this kind of arc and understand that this is the steps that they have to take. And what's important about this is that this landscape is, you know, the sands are always shifting. It's always changing. So having a good concept of what the direction looks like is, is important right now. The granular bits of who is what and, and what's going to happen, um, it's important, but it is not, it's not the focus because six months from now, you may have something different. A year and a half from now, you may have something completely different. But the general direction would be you know, more or less the same. So you know, we are looking at just in a nutshell and looking at the sort of investment landscape. We are a little bit different to, to a lot of folks out there um, in, the, in this sort of investment business because we are looking at the projects that bridge TradFi and DeFi, and we're looking for projects that create the decentralized infrastructure that effectively supports that capability as well. Right. So, your, answer is, your answer is so important because 
I feel like when you're in your first days of crypto and you're early to the industry, you want to pick the winners or you want to pick, oh, DeFi is going to be the winner. Decentralized, unregulated businesses are going to be the winner or this chain or that chain. And I think that, you know, what I've learned over time is it it's like there, we don't have to choose winners. You know, anytime you get you get asked, oh, well, which coin is going to be, you know, the one or or which chain? We don't have to pick those. And I, I love this idea of this arc of decentralization that it's going to be a new finance. It's not going to be one or the other. It's not going to be TradFi versus DeFi. It's going to be a new finance. So I just thought that was, you know, such an important message, you know, especially to people that are new to the space. To, to your point, something really interesting and confound a lot of folks in the past I would go into panels or, or give talks and then folks would say, okay, which stable coin is going to win? Yeah. And I would say, well, strangely enough, we need a lot more stable coins because this is a, a spectrum of capability and every stable, every stable coin that comes out is an expression of that capability. And when you have that expression, you give users options. And that sort of consumer surplus is incredibly important because you not only galvanize new use cases but you galvanize users and you actually create your ecosystem because at the end of the day it's about an ecosystem it's not about as you pointed out one token one coin wins it's about many it's about giving a lot of options and if you think about it blockchain through its transparency and its capability has taken us to a new level of options yeah. A new level of, of transparency. And that is the thing that we need to leverage. Well, there hasn't been much um, competition in currencies. You know, governments have really had a monopoly on on currencies. And so now to give that competition, to, to give options to users, it's just going to make it better for, for the end user. I also use the word fun because if you, um, the one element I'm finding, you know, when I do engage with um, a lot of the institutions and a lot of the public policy folks is that, as I pointed out earlier, that sort of one element of decentralization is non-jurisdictional. And that's incredibly difficult to get your head around because you're not going to be able to manage it because that's the ocean. You're not going to tell the ocean, all right, the tide needs to go that way or you need to stop with the tire, turn off the waves, you're not going to be able to do that. But where the, the activity occurs, you can. So even though these things are non-jurisdictional, activity happens in jurisdictions that need to comply and have regulation applied to them in those jurisdictions. And so, again, it gives you this, this sort of mental model as it were to compare the sort of traditional world in its jurisdictional form to this non-jurisdictional world and then find where the differences are and where the capabilities are um one aspect i i won't go down too much of a rabbit hole because i'm it's kind of exciting for for me is when i think about my one of my previous lives was an history derivative structure um i look at the traditional world and its risk-free rates and I first thing I remember having a lot of arguments with my lecturers in the past saying, why do they call it risk-free? Because nothing is risk-free. It's a trusted rate. You're always trusting someone. And now in the blockchain space, you've got the trust-free rate. So you've got a paradigm of the trusted rate versus the trust-free rate. I wonder what that basis is going to look like. I wonder what that's going to do to create this new ecosystem of finance you know, in the future. Having these two paradigms, 
Why are they different? Why would one person go to, to a trust-free rate versus a trusted rate? These are the primary drivers of this new finance, of this new economy, which you guys are, you know, smack bang in the center of. Well, and, you know, you're talking about risk. And obviously, one of our thesis is that, you know, through crypto insurance, through providing insurance to, to crypto, you know, um, players, we can you know, promote the mass adoption of crypto, we can, you know, continue on this arc of, of decentralization. And so to bring it to that, you know, insurance side, are there any, you know, obviously, UDHC is a, a supporter of ours, and we're so grateful for that. But are there any other, you know, insurance products or, uh, you know, crypto insurance pieces that you're excited about? Yeah, I'm gonna have to, I'm just thinking about that question. I'm gonna have to provide a bit of context because, you know, it's 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 about a subjective view and it's about the subjective view that has been brought to to UDHC. Um, every business I've ever been a part of, to one extent or another, has been about risk identification, pricing, and transfer. And I remember even at one point, and this is something that you guys will find fascinating, is I used captive insurance. Um, along with a reinsurer to create a proxy balance sheet in order to transact um, something called basket options. And funnily enough, this was all for securities lending. So it was it's a bit convoluted putting it together, but it was fascinating because immediately I got to have a look at securitizing reinsurance risks. I got to understand broadly insurance linked securities. Um, and I was, it was incredibly fascinating for me. The question was, well, hang on a second. Why aren't more insurance risks securitized or made available or, you know, effectively transparent? And in that, I found the answer. I realized that, well, these are kind of like structured products. And I've, I've been involved with structured products before. It feels bespoke. The issuance process is, is kind of not transparent and consequently the underlying risks that determine its price is in completely opaque. So, the problem with was, well, this is going to hamper its ability to find liquidity. This is going to hamper its ability to actually get traction and bring these two worlds back in TradFi space, bring these two worlds of capital markets and insurance together. You know, what's keeping it from becoming a, a huge thing? Um, you know, and admittedly, to the extent that I was involved, involved with it in the past and now things have changed, but I still think there's a lot that can be done. Um, and that really has driven my, how can I put it, my, my hunt for these new concepts of risk management in the DeFi space. And everywhere you look, it's really interesting, everywhere you look in the DeFi space, insurance is somewhat almost explicitly baked into projects. If you have a look at Maker, for example, insurance is actually explicitly baked into the protocol. There are certain elements where certain risks arise, trigger certain events, and things are effectively buffered and looked after. The problem being is it's not well priced. Actually, it's not priced at all. So consequently, there is an opportunity to be able to do that same level of insurance for this protocol if you could find what that price is and provide it appropriately. Now, that really pertains to a lot of DAOs out there that effectively, you know, um, range from you know, credit generation through to lending and borrowing and even to um, the, 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 the DEXs. There's got this 
somewhat implied but mostly explicit sort of insurance angle. So when we go out there, we were looking at you know projects that have this baked in for us to be able to understand how that works into the token economics, how that can actually be priced appropriately and maybe outsourced. The second thing is we were looking at, at projects that were in the, the crypto insurance space, but interestingly, they were always just focused on crypto specific risk, like smart contract risk. And that's fine. It's really interesting because at the end of the day, we thought maybe the tokens, or at least I thought those tokens would look something like insurance and securities. So if you get enough liquidity around it, you bring this concept of insurance risk to the fore, you've got a diversified asset that you can put into your portfolio or you've got an asset that you can use for many other things. And um, we also found that there are a couple of companies or other projects you know, taking the same, trying to, save the same, trying to solve the same problem, but using the credit risk approach. And this is really about you know, credit, uh, um, credit derivatives, taking those concepts and thinking about how they could apply to the space. And as you guys know, credit derivatives insurance, you know, they're, they're pretty damn close together. They're not exactly the same, but they're pretty, you know, pretty darn close together. The problem being, and this is where, you know, as you mentioned, we do support names wholeheartedly. We couldn't find, or at least I couldn't find a platform that could bring the sort of traditional tooling on chain and basically say, here's the possibility to underwrite any risk, not just this sort of crypto specific risk. And that's where when you guys came across, I, I remember you know, talking to, to Brian, who initially introduced names to us. I must have read the first five pages of your white paper and I just went, yes, this is it. This is, this is what I'm looking for. You want a platform that is bringing this tooling on chain because for me, it had a historical context. It immediately said, yes, you're solving for the transparent issues. You're solving for the opaque price drivers. You're solving for so many things. You can actually bring the capital markets and insurance markets together and you can do so leveraging this concept of blockchain to do it, which means that not only can you do it, you bring more capability to it. So the potential in my head was it was explosive. I remember just sitting there going, firstly, I was, I must admit, I had like this pang of jealousy because I really tried to do this in the past mm -hmm. and it didn't work. And then I saw this in front of me and I thought, damn, these guys have done it. I remember that discussion. Yeah, Danielle, we'll have to think about our question to not be leading, uh, leading you to basically give us a glowing review. But we certainly appreciate it. Um, and you know, I, I think the you know what's exciting for us about this podcast is really for it to be an exploration of the missing link, aptly named. Is you know what sorts of things do we think are missing? Uh, and maybe the answer is going to be derived from the things that are working. And what I've pulled out over. You know what you've been saying is this idea of you know risk management and uh, and you know its various different forms. Um, perhaps just to you know to finish with, you know, can you put uh, uh, perhaps in a more specific way? Maybe it is risk management. Maybe it's something else. As to what you would define as you know an area that is missing in the space to avoid you know sinking ships like ftx and uh, and sharks uh, that we all know of um and you know really this kind of rising tide to stick with your ocean metaphor to to continue bringing value to people around the world what what would you put a, your finger on as uh, as the missing link there this goes back to 
you know, when you talk about centralized operators and you know the fact that they're opaque and the heart of the question comes out in being what the missing link is. And that is, I'll be very explicit here, is a framework that separates decentralized protocols from those that are not. That's missing. Um, that's something that we have been working on for a long time, and we actually use it as part of our sort of investment analysis to be able to identify what we want to get involved with because a decentralized protocol is infrastructure, it's tooling. You know, a protocol that presents itself as decentralized but is not, it's not tooling, it's just a business. And that's great. You know, I'm all for folks creating business, but I'm looking for tooling, I'm looking for infrastructure, and I'm looking for those projects that bridge DeFi and TradFi. Those things together create, in my mind, the future. And what is important from, from that framework or important getting that framework is that regulation becomes the next um the next missing link. And I need to be not so much careful, I just want to be articulate and, and, and use my words appropriately. It's not that regulation is wrong or right. Regulation needs to incorporate this framework of decentralization in order to know where to use its tools. <laughs> I don't think that they need to come up with anything new. Um, there are some gaps. And those are being addressed right now. And as I said to you, being part of the public policy space and regulatory space, we understand what they're trying to address. And they're doing a good job of getting there. But essentially, that framework is going to be the most important thing in the future because it's going to define what DeFi is. It's going to define what a DAO is. It's going to define when something is decentralized and what you need to do with it and what that basically means for consumers and investors which is incredibly important. So um, if anything, I think that is the, the missing link right now. Perfect. Well, I'm, I'm hearing risk management, uh, clear regulation, you know, bridge between traditional and, uh, you know, traditional finance and DeFi. And, you know, there's certainly lots of interesting projects in that mix. So, uh, yeah, you've got a big year ahead of you for 2023. And we both wish you very, uh, you know, a huge amount of luck and, and appreciate you supporting the names mission as well. Um, Stephen Becker, thanks so much for being on our Missing Link podcast number one. It was really enjoyable. Thank you so much for having me. And also best of luck to you guys. It's a great project. Thank, Thank you. you. We're one step closer to finding the missing link. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. And be sure to come back next month. Until then, we are the missing link.